Mark Hamrick joins us now on the Wintrust Business Lunch, the Washington Bureau Chief and Senior Economic Analyst at Bankrate.com. Hey, Mark, welcome back. Thank you, John. Happy Friday. Yeah, you too. I appreciate in the notes you sent to producer Pete that while we saw these new jobs numbers and they were better than expected by a little bit and then less in some sectors, you kind of broke it down for us industry by industry, field by field. Mm -hmm. That is kind of interesting, isn't it? Particularly in this case, thank you for that, John, because uh, I get a little irritated sometimes, particularly, frankly, in financial television, where uh, there'll be kind of a focus on better than expectations, worse than expectations, beating expectations. And frankly, for most of the people in the world, that's totally irrelevant, right? They just kind of want to know what's going on. And so there was a rush this morning to say, oh, 199,000 jobs added to payroll is better than expected. Well, okay, the consensus among economists was 190,000. So if you're going to make a difference of 9,000, have at it. But within the payrolls, in other words, the total number of jobs added on the month, 30,000 were auto workers, i.e. members of the UAW when the strikes ended, 17,000 in the motion picture industry, the members of the Screen Actors Guild who returned to work. So that's 47,000. That basically gets you back to where you were in October with 150,000 jobs added. So, you know, we can talk about sort of the um, you know, the sort of betting aspects of all of this. But more importantly, what Americans just want to know, is the economy holding up? Is there a prospect for improving trends on inflation? And so far, the answer to both of those questions, uh, as best as we can tell, is yes. It's a, I just think such an interesting point. That's exactly what I was looking at. So I forgot. Yeah, well, 28,000 people went back to work who were on strike in the auto business and uh, 17,000 people in the movie business are back to work. So that's 45,000 people who would have been the workforce anyway, except they had stepped aside during the strike. And maybe more troubling still is that well, shouldn't, I don't know, shouldn't retail numbers be up in the fourth quarter at Christmas time? But we lost 38,000 jobs in that area. I think that's consistent with what we know and think about the holiday shopping season this year, John. And don't forget, some of this is because of seasonal adjustment, which really gets noisy where you're trying to smooth out the numbers relative year to year. We know that seasonal hiring this year is relatively low in retail. Uh, our friends at Challenger Gray and Christmas talked about that just earlier this week, a Chicago-based firm that specializes in workforce analysis. Uh, the same is true of transportation and warehousing, which supports retail. There was a decline there of 5,000. The reality is that in many ways, the retail trade uh, is in good shape because they don't have the supply chain disruptions that were really weighing on everybody's minds a few years ago. And so their inventories are in good shape. Uh, in some cases, some of their prices, particularly for apparel and consumer electronics, et cetera, are coming down. That's great for consumers, but that's going to weigh on the total sales numbers because of, let's say, you're buying the same number of things that you did before. You might see a decline in sort of the absolute dollar sign-based numbers that play into things like earnings and revenues. So yeah. um, I, I think we need to restrain our expectations for the holiday shopping season for, for a lot of reasons. Do these jobs numbers tell us anything about the economy next year or the recession, Mark? Of course, John, they're in the rearview mirror, but we have had some relatively uh, good momentum continuing this year. But that momentum has been easing from what we saw last year, just in terms of jobs creation. Last year, we averaged about 300,000 jobs a month. 
so far uh, this year, uh, we are closer to 200,000 with respect to that uh, monthly average. And I think that the risk is that we do see uh, some uh, further slowing of jobs creation next year. Uh, the good news also is that while we started the year off uh, in very uh, discouraging fashion, the number of job cuts, uh, that seems to have moderated as well. Uh, year to date, we've averaged 232,000 jobs added. And of course, as we know, uh, if you subtract out what we talked about, those temporary impacts, we've basically been at 150,000 in the past couple of months with jobs added. And, and that is actually more than we need just to maintain uh, the current unemployment rate. So the good news is we've avoided the most predicted recession uh, since the beginning of time. The bad news is most Americans feel like they're experiencing a recession because of the erosion of buying power. That's a story that we published just this week based on a survey by my tremendous Illinois native colleague, uh, Sarah Foster, uh, where we get into this notion of the silent recession or the quiet recession where, mm -hmm. no, we don't check the boxes off with respect to what economists talk about, but if people feel like it's a recession, then it becomes almost an academic discussion. Yeah. Well, I wonder what number is more important, the employment numbers, which seem robust, or the inflation number or interest rates? I mean, what should we be focusing on these days, Mark? Well, they're all a little like our children. We don't want to say that one is uh, more worthy of attention too much than the other, if we have that many. But what I would say is typically during normal times, which we these have not been, you know, inflation had been under control and therefore our attention would gravitate toward the employment numbers. But, you know, when we've had the worst inflation in 40 years and only beginning to come down to more nominal levels, you know, you have to, I think, pay more attention to that. And we'll have the Consumer Price Index next week. John, you know, very often we'll talk about these headline numbers and the CPI. But the reality is this main measure of inflation at the retail level, you know, we'll talk about month over month. We'll talk about compared to a year ago. Most recently, the CPI was up 3.2% compared to a year earlier. And that sounds fine. But here's what it was compared to before the pandemic up 20 percent okay so the three percent seems fine 20 percent seems like a disaster so we really do want to see those prices stabilize and in some cases get some more disinflation get prices right. lower you don't want too much of that but i get that and when you were at nine percent and since the inflation is cumulative then over the last three and a half four years it really is 20 percent and I'll be honest with you, I've been trading email with some listeners who say that I'm downplaying the impact of that. And maybe I am. I would say this for all of us. I'm really just trying to process it. Mm -hmm. If inflation were were two and a half percent over the last four years, then goods would cost 10 percent more now than they did yeah. before the pandemic. So 20 percent is too high. But it's a difference of 10 percent, not 20. Anyway, just what wisdom do you have for us on how to gauge the impact of higher prices? Well, I think the good news is everybody who's listening, everybody who's writing you those emails and those who aren't are in a good position to judge that uh, on their own personal households. And mm -hmm. uh, but I, what I would say is I think there's better news, you know, that's here and there's better news coming. Uh, and if we can avoid that much predicted recession in 2024, you know, another reason perhaps to give thanks or to say our prayers at the dinner table. Uh, and, you know, we're still facing a lot of risks. We're facing geopolitical risks, the, the, the two hot wars, the things that we can't predict. And, oh, oh, lo and behold, we have an election year coming up.
You have any thought about that? I mean, don't things yeah. sort of well, you tell me what happens before and after a presidential election, which is not for 11 months. Yeah, well, I think, first of all, uh, you know, high, I think you, you categorize that as under the high levels of uncertainty. But, you know, if we look at everything the U.S. economy has weathered over the past four years, it's done pretty well. That's largely been at the hand of, uh, you know, the central bank, but also in some cases where elected officials did step in and add some stimulus. You know, in terms of the outcome of the election, you know, I, I think I think that's probably better left to the, the political analysts of the world. But I can just tell you that when um, I, I speak to economists, when I survey economists, you know, they're not going to make heavy bets on the outcome of the election because, first of all, it's very difficult to predict. And, you know, it's even possible that we don't even know who the nominees are in terms of their own party, uh, you know, leaders at that point. So, uh, I mean, I know what the the heavy bet is right now, but I'm just saying, you know, things change, blah, blah, blah. So what I would say is I think the most important takeaway here, John, is for people to just be mindful of their finances, to have a budget, to have a long term strategy with respect to saving for retirement. Because look what's happened in the markets here recently. You know, we had the stock market really rally very strongly this year on the expectation that inflation would come down and the Fed would sort of cool it. And and now we're sort of going into these end of year gains that are quite sizable. And people who had become too negative on the stock market, particularly for their long term savings, ended up sort of not not faring too well. So I think it's really about a, a long term approach rather than focusing on the short term, because we're not very good at predicting those things and perhaps even worse in, in the sense of making rational decisions about our uh, money with respect to those things. We got to run now, Mark. What are credit card rates at? What's the average credit card rate that people are paying? Yeah, we're still pretty close to about 20 and three quarters percent because that's very, and that's new offers for the best qualified individuals. But the good news is if there's any, and there is some good news, and the, and the bond yields have really sort of cratered here in the last couple of weeks. Uh, we're now getting a mortgage rate that's closer, 30-year fixed rate mortgage is closer to 7% than 8 And obviously, you know, we, we were at 7% uh, in August, so we're just sort of retracing the ground. But, you know, if we can get housing affordability, give that a little bit of a lift here in the coming months, and we could actually see some near-term relief, I think, in some of the housing numbers. And we'll just have to see where those things um, sort of level out if they do level out. But the expectation is that we'll see some relief on the mortgage rate front. And then if the Fed actually does cut rates in 2024, as expected, that'll filter on through. Connecting the dots between the economy, politics, and personal finance. That's Bankrate's Mark Hamrick. Okay, Mark, we'll talk again. Thank you, sir. Thank you, my friend, and happy holidays to everybody. I just asked producer Pete off the air if you could have season tickets to the teams in Chicago. And, you know, maybe I would include women's basketball, soccer, and college football and basketball. What would the Maybe that's the news click for the weekend, Pete. <laughs> Who would it be if you could have season tickets to any of the franchises or college teams in Chicago? <sighs> Cubs, Blackhawks, I guess those would be my top two. Anyway, it's at 1235. On the Wintrust Business Lunch, Tom Appel is the car guru in town. He's the publisher of Consumer Guide Automotive. You want to answer that, Tom? If I had season tickets under the tree for you this year, it would be for whom? Though I fear the drive, um, I would love it for the Cubs. Well, you're coming in from the suburbs, are you? Yeah, I'm out in Palatine area, yeah. So that, it's a little hassle to get there, but, but worth it in the end. It, it's just it's a bigger time commitment. 
I also think that if you said, where am I going to park? The Bears and the Cubs are the toughest assignments, right? Most expensive or most, you got to manage. If you go to um, the United Center or the South Side, there's plenty of parking. That's not going to be a problem. Cubs, you got to figure out where you're going to do it, right? Yeah, and it's an added cost, and I didn't think of that, but it, I have paid $100 to park for a Cubs game <laughs> when, I, when I arrived late. It's like, wow, that's a lot of money. Yeah, we, do, we, we paid a premium one time for the easy out, and when we went to our car in the eighth inning, it was not easy out. And they didn't give me my money back. <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about those cars that were taken in and out. Uh, listen, you were on with Lisa Dent the other day, and I appreciate that. She asked a question that is of interest to me about the $7,500 uh, rebate on electric cars, but you need a sufficient number of the components to be made in the U.S. or not to be made in four countries. Right, Tom? Yeah, right. They don't want anything from, from uh, specifically China, but Russia and a couple of other countries are also um, partners of concern or trade partners of concern. And, and your, your battery components really need to come from, from registered and friendly trading partners. And to enforce this, um, you, you will see a reduction or a loss of the federal tax credit that is applied to new EV purchases. Right. And that's really the administration's way to sort of jumpstart the production of those batteries in the United States. And while that may work, it's going to take a while. So some cars are going to be off the list and then maybe they reemerge down the road. Is that a fair read? That's exactly right. And, and January 1st, the, the rules become a little bit more stringent. And interestingly, and perhaps frustratingly for Ford, uh, the Ford Mustang Mach-E, one of the first of the new generation of electric vehicles, um, it looks like no models of that vehicle are going to qualify for the tax credit. So that's a huge financial burden for Ford because they're going to have to lower that price. Likewise, the the Tesla Model 3, which is the least expensive, expensive Tesla model, the cheapest versions of that vehicle are not going to qualify or not going to qualify for the entire tax credit. What about the Chevy? Is it Volt or is it Bolt, the Chevy electric car? What about that one? Do you know? Bolt is actually being discontinued, and there will be versions of Chevy products that are coming in very quickly, and they will qualify. Uh, Chevy, the General Motors... EV batteries are all built here, and they apparently have sourced those batteries um, with components and materials that qualify. What did I see about one of the states, probably California, right, that is contemplating not allowing the production or sale of gasoline-powered cars in 2035 or something like that? Does that ring a bell? Yeah, and that number keeps moving around, and, and the, the Western Europe has done the same thing. The EU has said something like 2035. There's going to have to be flexibility on that. We've reached an interesting point right now, and I don't know if we're at the actual inflection point, where interest in EVs seems to be slowing down a little bit, and that's because early adopters have their, their electric vehicles. The next are you know, just sort of brave, regular consumers, but you really have to have your own home and ability to charge at home to make an EV work for you right now. And as we're getting towards people who rent, considering their next car, they're not likely to do this unless they've got something convenient set up, and we have to get past that. And right now the infrastructure just isn't there for those people. What else should I know about electric cars right now? Um, it, it, exactly that. There's a lot of frustration out there, including my own personally. I ran into an experience last weekend where the trying to charge your vehicle if you can't charge at home is just frustrating, and that's unfortunate, and I think that's going to slow down adoption until that gets better. Yeah, um, but I don't hear many complaints anecdotally from people that have electric cars, that they 
Um, are, and, and I can think of three couples who are driving three different kinds of vehicles. They, you know, are managing the battery charge to distance issue. They like the cars. Is, is, what would you say about customer satisfaction with the electric vehicles out there? Uh, it seems that anecdotally and then in surveys as well that people who own electric vehicles love electric vehicles in general. They are smoother, they're quicker, they, they, there's a lot there to really like. Additionally, there's a, there was a number, and this number might be getting a little stale, but I read it about a year ago, that 95% of people who currently own EVs uh, have never charged their public charging station. So they're just enjoying the incredible convenience of plugging in at home, and, and everything's going great for them. What do you say about the politics of this? There does not seem to be, or at least in some circles, I'm thinking maybe the Republican circles, there seems to be less enthusiasm for uh, electric vehicle manufacture and sale. Yeah, the pushback is interesting, and the political the political component of this is a little bit frustrating. My colleague who does my, co- uh, my podcast with me, her name is Jill, drives through Indiana a lot, and she's in test product, and much of it is electric these days. And there's very little charging in Indiana. And it seems as if there's going to be very little charging in Indiana moving forward because no one anticipates a huge demand for the product there. So if you're looking for infrastructure to be distributed sort of equally across the nation, that's not going to happen. Obviously, the charging stations are going in where they think the cars are going to be. And I think that that might exacerbate the problem because it actually makes the argument worse. Like, we can't charge. Why would we ever buy an electric vehicle? Not that we were going to buy one in the first place. But if you were courting voters in the Rust Belt, the Midwest, anywhere, really, and you wanted to ensure that jobs would be there since it requires fewer people to make electric cars, that maybe is a campaign point, right? That you're not for electric vehicles that will maybe unemploy some people that are making gas-powered cars. That's the thinking, right? It is, and this was sort of a subtext of the strike that we just endured. Um, the battery plants that build the batteries, which is one of the major components of an EV, uh, employ about one-third fewer people than do other automotive suppliers. So that's a big problem. That's just fewer people. Additionally, the cars themselves are a little bit simpler to build. So moving forward, we are going to need fewer vehicles. And I haven't seen yet, I've seen just little trickles of this argument, that the battery charging infrastructure is going to require maintenance, and that's going to require people. But I haven't seen that argument yet. And also, they don't seem to be being maintained. So... What do you mean well, they don't seem yet. to be – what's not being maintained? The, the, the charging network itself. It seems like new chargers go in, and then they fail, and they stay failed, which is a problem. Oh, I'm not aware of that. But I wonder, net-net, if it's true that gas-powered cars employ more people than maybe the electric industry, which is batteries, which is chips, which is the vehicles themselves, which is charging stations. Do you know what the math on that is? It was the, the, the general thinking is that electric vehicles will require about a third fewer uh, man hours to produce. To produce, okay, but I'm just wondering if it's not more complicated than that when you consider the ancillary stuff. Um, what about the Tesla Cybertruck? What's that and what's new about that? Anyone following this story is probably pretty entertained at this point, but the Cybertruck truck was introduced a few years ago, and this is, it looks like a hand sketch by Elon Musk have, having come to life, but it's a very futuristic stainless steel vehicle that does not look like a pickup truck, though that is its mission. And, and there were a lot of promises made about this, and, that, and that's sort of the, the Tesla plan is to make a lot of promises for a vehicle and maybe trickle out what you promise later on. But the Cybertruck, 
uh, was finally introduced, and, and the vehicle that was supposed to be about $40,000 and have 500 miles of range, uh, the base model is now $61,000, but that won't be available until 2025. The least expensive Cybertruck you can buy now is $80,000. <laughs> but it, it's got some impressive specs, including being able to, to tow 11,000 pounds, and it does look like the original drawing, which sounds like, if you see it, you understand that it was a manufacturing nightmare. It's a lot of sharp edges, a lot of creases. Uh, it's a very strange vehicle. I'm not entirely sure why they chose to build this, but there it is. And, and there's a huge fan, uh, huge fan base for this vehicle. It does say something about the battery production and advancements that we've made over the years, right? That you can have a pickup truck with that kind of towing capacity and a bed and still be able to, you know, pull something with a battery system. It is, yeah, and, and, and people who don't know this, when the, the dawn of the auto industry in the U.S., the first vehicles really were mostly electric, and then the battery technology didn't take off, and we went gasoline because gasoline is portable and easy to move, and gasoline engines are just simpler, and you didn't need uh, a complicated and expensive battery. And we're just now at the point where this all makes sense, and battery technology is advancing. If you think about the, the Chevrolet Volt, which came out in 2011, the battery pack for that car, which only provided about 40 miles of range, was something like $14,000, and, and now uh, a $10,000 battery will probably move a car three, 400 miles. So we're definitely getting better. Tom Appel's on a phone line. Let's pause here and then uh, come back with more questions for you, and maybe you've got one of those. 312-981-7200, 312-981-7200. Still to come, I'll ask Tom about technology to keep people from speeding and the Hyundai Amazon partnership. You're going to buy a car online. Is that the future of car selling? First, more business news with Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. The company whose technology made Tide Pods and other single-dose detergent products possible is moving into an innovation center in Chicago's Fulton Market District. Monosol has signed a lease for about 35,000 square feet at the 1375 West Fulton location. Cranes reports the Merrillville-based company plans to open the new space around the middle of next year. Two buildings at the location make up what's being called Fulton Labs, and it's 98% leased to various life sciences and lab-based users. A Chicago startup called Baby Gami has won the top prize at TechRise Chicago's pitch competition. The company won $100,000 after presenting to a panel of judges. Baby Gami makes a collapsible baby bottle. It says the bottle can save space and reduce waste. The bottle is made of silicon with interchangeable tops. About 120 companies competed in TechRise. Baby Gami says it'll use the prize money to launch a crowdfunding campaign. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. Time for the business of food. Here's Steve Alexander. Thank you, and it's a Mr. Fizz Friday, except it's a Santa Fizz Friday. But Santa Fizz, Jim Fizzell, our gardening guru, is not here. He's busy, so he volunteered one of his elves to take part. Is that okay with you? I like that. I don't have my cap on. I'll run and grab a cap. <laughs> okay, while you do that, I will say that we are sponsored by the Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com. There has never been a better time to put a Silverado in your toolbox. On the phone with me is our special elf today. Jennifer Brennan, Horticulture Information Specialist at Chalet Home and Garden. Yeah, right there and well met. And thank you for being Santa Fizz's special elf today. Yeah, I'm so honored that he recommended me. <laughs> Great. Well, you're here to help us with some gift ideas for thumbers. We are always trying to get people to convert from 
black thumbs to green thumbs. Okay, let's get to the list. And we don't have time for all of them, but we'll put all on our website. What's first? There's a fun new product out there. The the brand is called No Water Flower Wax, W-A-X-Z. And these are amaryllis bulbs that are coated in wax. There's a wire stand on the bottom, so you can just set them on a tabletop. They don't need to be in a vase. They don't need to be watered. They don't need to be planted. They just start growing and flowering. It's a real fun gift. Okay. What else? I I wanted to include plant care products. And my very first number one is a liquid fertilizer called Super Thrive Grow. Okay. How about some gardening tools? Those make some good gifts. If you really want to be a good friend, get your green thumb friend a Felco pruning shear. It is a top-of-the-line pruning shear. These are tools that are designed to last the rest of your life. What about some kids' gardening gifts? We have a phenomenal children's department with all kinds of tools and gloves, little kits to start plants indoors. Cool. Jennifer Brennan, Santa Fe's elf, helping us out today from <laughs> Chalet Garden Center in Wilmette, one of many great garden centers around Chicago that have some terrific gift ideas. A whole bunch more from Jennifer are listed on WGNRadio.com. On the food calendar, yum, it's National Brownie Day. I'm Steve Alexander. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. When Trust Business Lunch, we're talking about cars with Tom Appel. Uh, Tom, are we going to be buying cars differently than we used to in the past? Are we just going to click on Amazon and get a vehicle? The Amazon thing is really interesting, and it's a tie-up of two huge brands. You've got Hyundai and Amazon, and at the LA Auto Show about a week and a half ago, Hyundai announced their partnership with Amazon, and beginning very soon, I think very early next year, you will be able to order your vehicle on Amazon. Now, the benefit of that isn't entirely clear yet. One of the problems in the U.S. is that, um, a problem for this kind of retail situation at least, is that we work with, with a franchise dealer system. That means all the dealers, uh, the franchise, have, are, are, I'm sorry, all the dealers have sculpted what is known as franchise law, and it pro- prohibits uh, established um, manufacturers from selling directly to customers. They have to go through franchises. Right. So part. Part of the problem is here, we may not actually see fixed prices. And, and early on, um, Hyundai is only going to hook up the Amazon system with dealers that agree to do this, and I suspect agree to honor the prices that they're going to advertise. Um, it, it's hard to know what this means yet. It could be very big. It might be nothing at all. It's funny because I can go online and click out the features I want, and then the vehicle's delivered to my local dealer, Right. Uh, yeah, it's always delivered to your dealer, unless you're dealing with uh, one of the new EV startups, right, like Lucid and Rivian and Tesla. They, they use a direct-to-consumer model, and they've been able to avoid franchise law, but that's simply because they have no franchise dealerships at all. Uh, so they've been able to skirt that. But, yes, if you order a vehicle right now, and you can go to any dealership or any manufacturer website and spec out your vehicle and price well, that's it. That's what I mean, yeah. Yeah. Well, now, you haven't negotiated a price yet, though, so you're looking at full retail. Um, and, and so the actual price is decided at the dealership, and you, and you work with your dealership on that price. Well, like all things Amazon, I guess the notion would be, the advantage would be getting a better price. Granted, you have to buy 24 of them, but you would get a better <laughs> I bought a Hyundai on Amazon. I got a great deal, but I got 23 of them in the garage. Uh, but is that the idea? The lure would be better price? Better price and, I guess, convenience. But they haven't actually made the pitch, I think, 
to the extent that I understand what the value is. It could be a big deal if they can if they can get dealers to cooperate and honor the single price, and that's not something the dealers can be compelled to do. But if we go back, you know, 25 years, Saturn was able to do this for a while. People might remember General Motors Saturn. Now, there wasn't an online situation yet, but there was a single price, and it was a big deal for General Motors to be able to do that, but all the dealers cooperated. I seriously doubt that all Hyundai dealers are willing to do this. Yeah, well, it would sure seem to me to cut into the profits or even viability of the dealers in any of those nameplates. Tom that McCullough, is the fear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Publisher and consumer of Consumer Guide Automotive. He's the host of Consumer Guide Stuff podcast. ConsumerGuide.com is where you read Tom's work. Tom, it's nice to talk to you. Thanks for the insight today. Thanks, John.